0: Morning, church. I'm not sure I'm on. Or someone's making popcorn. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Well, my name's Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. And just want to welcome you. If this is your first time visiting with us, or even if it's not your first time, just want to welcome you. Glad you're here to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I remember growing up, uh, when my family started going to church, uh, occasionally we would go to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday church, and and the pastor would get on the platform or on the stage, and he would say this little phrase. He'd say, he is risen, and then everyone would say, he, he is risen is indeed. indeed, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it annoyed me, actually, I remember <laughs> growing up, because I, I already thought Christians were hokey. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I guess they are, a lot of Christians are hokey, but, um, but I remember thinking, well, I mean, look, that's nice. I, I get it, right? Uh, we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Yep, he's not dead. That's a good thing, um, particularly if you believe in this stuff. But I mean, at the end of the day, why does the resurrection matter? I mean, yes, of course, it's a good thing that Jesus is not dead, but... What significance does that have? What sort of impact does that have on my life, say, tomorrow, Wednesday when I'm at school, or Wednesday when you're at work? And you know that's what I sort of did every year, and maybe you've done the same. Maybe you've you've, you've come to church every Easter, and you've heard that little "He's risen indeed," and and everyone's excited, and and rightly so. And then afterwards, right, you've uh, participated in, you know, Easter egg hunts um, with chocolate. Uh, maybe this weekend you ate fish, um, you know, hot cross buns, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And then you came to church and everyone got really excited and wore colorful clothes. And then you, you repeated the phrase and then you repeated the tradition again and again and again, every single year. But perhaps, perhaps before you went to sleep and before your head, hit the pillow, and you closed your eyes, you thought, all right, why does this matter? Really, why does the resurrection matter? So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at a passage in Luke that Jeanette just read for us, but then what I want to do actually is beyond just looking at that passage of the resurrection, uh, I want us to think about three different Ways in which people try to dismiss, debunk the resurrection, because we all get excited in this room. He's risen indeed, but there's heaps of people right here on the central coast and all throughout Australia that they they think that's pretty ludicrous. You guys really believe that a uneducated poor carpenter from a bush town that even at the time was a bush town, right? claimed to be the son of God, the agent of creation, claimed to be the son of God, and rightly so, got strung up by the Romans, nailed to a cross, and then all his followers said, oh, he didn't die, by the way, he actually, he rose again. That's crazy talk. You guys actually believe this stuff. And so people try to dismiss the resurrection. People try to say, oh, well, look, there's no way, maybe the disciples stole the body of Jesus, and that's what happened. And so, I want to talk, think about some of those ways in which people try to push a- aside the resurrection, try to dismiss it, debunk it. And then, lastly, I want to talk about why the resurrection is significant. Because, listen, the church, and rightly so, is sort of a parochial echo chamber. Do you know what I mean by that? He is risen, he is risen indeed. Good, we believe that, we are the church. But if you go to Mackers right after this and you say, he is risen, not the whole restaurant's not going to shout back, he is risen indeed, I mean, it might. <laughs> but it's probably not going to happen. So this is a parochial echo chamber. So then, given that fact, and that's okay, by the way, because we are the church, but if this is sort of, sort of then, then what significance does the resurrection actually have for us, besides the fact that, yeah, Jesus is not dead? And those are the last three things I want us to camp out on to see how the resurrection is relevant, past, present, and future. It has spiritual bearing, soteriological salvation, to use a $5 word, maybe a couple $5 words today or $2 coin, whatever you want to call it. How it has salvation implications for our lives, the resurrection. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's look to the Lord now and pray, though. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our helpless and hopeless state of sin, but you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, who, as we just celebrated a few days ago, came and lived a life of perfect obedience in our place, died, and Lord, death could not hold him down. He conquered the grave, and we thank you that we worship a ruling, reigning, risen and alive, a savior who is alive. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come Now, we know that you're here, that you're sovereign. We pray that you would convict and draw many to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you pull out, I actually have, I don't typically do this, but um, I have little sermon notes for you. I think Joy might've highlighted that already in the announcement, but if you'd like to, if that helps you follow along, great. If you wanna make a paper airplane with that or draw a funny picture of your dad or whatever, look, That's fine go for it. If you want to you know just feel like you don't want those, that's cool. Um, they're there just to help sort of funnel us down and see where we're going sort of gives us a, a sign as it were. Uh, don't get used to that though I don't want to make those every week so anyway. Um, little uh, on the very top of your notes though if you, if you are following along with that, I, I put a, a space for you to write down some jot down some bullet points as we unpack Luke 24. Um, just a little bit of background, and Jeanette did a great job with this. We just celebrated Good Friday, right? So, so Jesus, it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, there's this turning point in the Gospel of Luke where it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, okay? And, and there's a reason for that. He, he's a man on a mission. He's setting his face to Jerusalem. It's not, he's not caught off guard. It's not like he tried to sort of play his, you know, play his cards close to his chest or whatever, and all of a sudden he got crucified. Like he set his face to Jerusalem. Was a, the, the cross was, was planned uh, before the time began. And so he comes, is crucified, nailed to a cross, and then now we see in Luke 24, if you're following along in verse 1, that there are um, five women taking spices to Jesus' tomb early in the morning, And and what are they expecting to find, right? I mean, ultimately, they're expecting to find a corpse. We know the, I say this often, but we know the end of the story, so it's easy for us to sort of look from a 50,000 feet above and go, come on, ladies, what are you thinking? He is risen, he is risen indeed. But they don't expect, they're not chanting that, they're not expecting that. They're they're bringing these spices to offset a decaying body, a test a smell. But there is something quite interesting here, and, and we might miss it if, if we didn't just jump, jump up, or I guess left, depending on how your Bible's framed, or scroll if you have an iPad or iPhone or whatever it might be. But look, notice chapter 23. We might miss something important here. In chapter 23, verse 55, it's really interesting. Chapter 23, just go right above. It says, the woman... The women, sorry, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices. Those are the ones they're bringing to his tomb, right? And ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. And then, chapter 24, verse 1, on the, notice the language there, but on the first day of the week, do you see that there? First day, which is Sunday. It's interesting, though. They rested, it said, on the Sabbath. Now, in Israel, to this day, the Sabbath is Saturday, right? If you go to Israel, it's kind of cool. You can feel like you know Hebrew because you can say, Shabbat Shalom. And everyone will say, Shabbat Shalom. And it's kind of fun to say that. That's what's going on. these, These ladies are celebrating, as rightly so, good Jewish women, they're celebrating Shabbat. But the Sabbath officially ended at sundown on Saturday, which would allow these women to purchase the burial spices and arrive at the tomb. Now, notice the language, the first day of the week. You see that? Which is Sunday. And because it was Sunday, from this time on, it's the Lord's Day. This is the day of worship. The day has actually changed. Christians set aside this day to meet and remember the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that significant? Because when we meet 52 days out of the year on a particular Sunday, we are still celebrating the fact that Christ has risen. We worship a ruling, reigning, living Jesus. And that's why we do that on Sundays. But here in Luke's gospel, these women, like I said, they don't know that, right? They're not expecting to find Jesus raised from the dead. Look look in verse 2. but has risen. It's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, it records an angel supernaturally rolled the stone away. We don't get that in Luke, but in Matthew's gospel, an angel was the one who actually rolled that stone away. Now, why did the angel do that? Did Jesus rise from the dead and was trapped in that cave? You know, sort of... Hello, I want to I tell everyone, you know, someone let me out. And God's like, I got your back. You know, and he sends an angel and the angel, no, 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 no. Jesus appears to his disciples, if you recall, behind closed doors, right? Later on, he like, so he doesn't need an angel to sort of help him out. Here's the bottom line. The reason the angel rolled the stone away was not to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in so that they can see that he is risen. Years ago, about nine years ago, April and I had a chance to go visit Israel and to go to the probable burial tomb of, uh, yeah, look at that goofy guy, man, April, you look great, still have an age today, me, well, yeah, I don't know. But that is interesting, you have to, um, here's what's interesting about this, about this spot. This is the, uh, they say it might be one of, might be the burial tomb of Jesus. Um, and you have to now, now you have to, it looks like Disneyland, right? Like now you have to like head in here and you have to pay to enter in. And, and there's a big, there's a big long line and people are kind of, you know, come on, take your picture, let's go. And it, uh, Israel can be a bit commercialized. And, and that's just, that's just the way things are now. But, but here's what I did catch. What was interesting is, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely area you can walk around this garden area and there's people there from, from all different parts. Of the, I even met a group from Australia, actually. There's people from, from all different parts of the world, okay? And they're speaking different languages. They're praying. They're taking communion. They're singing. And what all these people are doing is they're worshiping the fact that, what? He is risen. They are witnesses now. See, so that's not literally the tomb. It's not like, wow, the stone is still there. From there. Like, that's just a rendition of it, Okay? But it's, they're, they're worshiping the fact that he is risen, and they're now able to, it's a rendition of it, but able to see the fact that he is risen. Again, the angel rolled the stone away not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. And that message now, as I sat you know, around with people from speaking all different languages, I'm like, wow, that message has ripple effect across this entire world. And here's people coming, worshiping the fact that Jesus is not dead that Jesus is alive. It it, it was actually a really encouraging moment for me. Look here, though, at at verse 6. That's really what the angels are proclaiming. Do you see that? He is not here, but he has risen. And then they say, remember? Remember how he told you why he was still in Galilee? You know, because during Jesus' earthly ministry, again, it's not as if this whole crucifixion thing was just caught him by surprise look at Luke 18, or you can listen to this, Jesus prophesied to his disciples saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Remember that he said this to you. This was the plan all along. And then in verse 7, If you're following along in verse 7, the Son of Man must. You see that word there? The Son of Man, you could even, if you like, you could underline that, you could circle that in your Bible if you like. The Son of Man must, must be delivered. You see that? The bloody crucifixion of God the Son did not catch God the Father off guard. Jesus' atoning death on the cross was God's providential plan to redeem his people. Jesus paid the price in full for sinners. Here comes the $2 coin word. He propitiated, propitiated the wrath of God. That's not a word we hear very often, do we? You don't, you don't go to Macros after this and hear someone says. Yeah, can I, can I get some propitiation on my chips? Propitiation is used in the New Testament to describe the pacifying or appeasing of God's wrath. Now, I guess the easiest way to remember the term propitiation is to say God is made, God the Father is made pro-us. Does that make sense? He is made pro-us. Christ's death not only removed the moral stain of sin, catch this, Christ's death not only removed the moral stain of sin, it also removed the personal offense of sin. You see, you have to understand, friends, when you sin, you might sin against others. Of course you do, we all have. But ultimately, what does David say when he sins with Bathsheba? That he's offended God, right? Sinned against you and you alone. Your sin and my sin offends God. He is offended by your sin. It's not as if, oh, I guess if we thought back when I was nine, I sinned once or twice. The Bible describes our condition before Jesus as dead in trespasses and sins, meaning from the day that you came kicking and screaming in this world, your whole bent has been nothing but to sin and to rebel against God from the day that you've been born, dead and spiritually, trespasses and sins because you are a son of Adam, completely a corpse. And that sin, friend, even the ones that you're not even consciously aware of, offends God, offends him. Even now, you may say, well, that's a really low view of man. That's the why the Bible describes it. Even now, you're sitting here, you may not like me saying these things, I'm talking about myself as well. But even now, I stand here and you sit there. Even now, as sinners, our lives hang by a slender thread of sovereign grace. Do you understand that? Now, nevertheless, even though that's true, you think, wow, that's really negative. It's it's not. Because God sent his son to be our propitiatory sacrifice out of love. The death of Christ, though, did not make God love you. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's not as if God is capricious. God is not a capricious, angry God who then needs to be placated by something, so someone better jump in. No, no, you have to understand the God who has always been for us in eternity sent his son in time to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice that we might enjoy peace with him forever. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God towards sinners. The holiness and justice of God, and I hope you have an understanding that God is holy and that God is just, and that is a part of your framework as you understand who God is, The holiness and justice of God was satisfied. His wrath was appeased. His righteous demands were accomplished through the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. This is good news. And these women can't keep silent about that, right? That Some men must, must. Look at verse 9. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. These cloths probably looked like an empty mummy shell, because Christ's body had passed through the cloth wrappings, leaving them intact which indicates no struggle or, or hurried unwrapping of grave robbers stealing the body of Jesus. His literal physical body moved through the cloths and left them behind in the tomb and left Peter sort of scratching his head. And it's interesting, Jesus later appears to two men on the road to Emmaus. He also appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb He appears to two other women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 11 disciples, not Thomas. But then eight days later, he appears to the disciples and Thomas, allowing him to put his fingers in his nail-pierced side and hand. He appeared to seven disciples on the shores of Galilee and ate a piece of fish because he wanted Australians to eat fish years later. No, he ate a piece of fish to demonstrate that he had a physical resurrected body. A ghost doesn't eat food. He had a physical resurrected body. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he appeared to over 500 people and after living 40 days on earth, ascended to heaven. Now, you can't miss this though. You may or may not know the story of when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There is a resurrection story there that there's this raising of Lazarus. But when Jesus was resurrected, it wasn't just coming back from the dead like Lazarus. If that's all it was, his resurrection would only be temporary and he would die like all human beings. When Jesus rose from the dead, his body was transformed, made perfect, no longer subject to weakness, aging, or death, but able to live forever. Now, appearing to over 500 people Etc., etc. There's pretty good evidence for the resurrection. Nevertheless, throughout the centuries, people that reject that have done theological gymnastics to say, well, here's the reasons why. We can't believe that. That's bogus. Let me give you three of them. Number one, in your notes, if you look at your notes, myths, three myths about the resurrection. Number one, the women and disciples went to a wrong tomb, got amnesia, whatever, right? You know, just forgot. Oh, it wasn't, you know, and, and here they are, they show up and they go, oh, he's not here, you know, and, oh, ladies, come on, you should, your GPS, you should have had Google Maps, not Apple Map, whatever, <laughs> you know, you, you went to the wrong one. Now, well, obviously, if that was true, later as the disciples are saying, oh, he's risen, he's alive, or proclaiming, and this is a huge pain in the neck to the religious leaders and to a lot of the Jews of that day, wouldn't have been a whole lot easier to run to the actual tomb, bring out the body and say, come on guys, what are you, what are you doing? Like this is, here he is, there's this dead body. So that's, that, that's a bit silly. Um, I, I, the common one that you might hear, the second bullet there, is that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Right in Matthew 28, after Jesus resurrected, the chief priests and elders paid the soldiers who gathered... Who guarded, sorry, who guarded the tomb to actually start this rumor. It's a 2,000-year-old rumor. But here's what's interesting about this. It's highly unlikely, highly unlikely, that they would have stolen the body of Jesus, made up a story for which they were willing to suffer pers- persecution and eventually be killed for. I mean, one of those guys, don't know who it would have been, but one of them would have been like, all right, I'm done, come on. I mean, if you even look at, say, if you're familiar with the Watergate and Richard Nixon scandal, someone's going to blow the whistle somewhere when they put their feet to the fire. And that's just that. Okay, I mean, it, if, if someone's going to like, oh, we're going to kill you now, uh, the, okay, come on, guys. Peter, admit it. We still, I mean, th- it, that's just insane. And even in the book of Acts, wh- who are they praying to? They're not praying to the son of God who lived and, oh, it was such a bummer that he died. They're praying to and now someone who's alive, a ruling, reigning savior. That's, that's their prayers. And again, don't forget, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, another argument, people say, well, okay, maybe the disciples didn't steal the body of Jesus. Cool. But maybe he never really died on the cross. Okay? This is called the swoon theory, meaning that Jesus got pummeled to a pulp, right, was laid in the tomb, and in the coolness of the tomb, Oh, it feels nice. Revived, woke up. Somehow, God himself, after that crucifixion, out of the wrappings, beat up the soldiers, rolled away the stone, you know, beat up the Roman soldiers. Oh, and by the way, Roman soldiers clearly had no idea what, they don't know how to crucify people. I mean, think about this thing logically. They, these guys were experts in crucifixion. They know what they're doing. That's why the centurion, right, put a spear in his side to know that he was dead. These people know, they, they know that's their job. And, and so the, the whole idea is, is, is pretty insane, really. There's plenty of historical evidence to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but we could talk about that all day. But again, that still doesn't answer the question, then why is that significant? Remember I talked, I talked to you about the parochial echo chamber of the church? Why is that then significant to us, say, come this Wednesday? Well, I want to take the remainder of our time to talk about why Christ's resurrection is significant for us with three theological words, if you haven't got enough already. First one is regeneration. That's the idea of being born again. Regeneration. The second one is justification. This means to be declared righteous. It's interesting though, behind that idea of of being declared righteous is the need for people who are not righteous to be actually declared righteous. Does that make sense? If you're not righteous and you need to be declared righteous, then you need to be justified. And then lastly is glorification. It's the final step in redemption. When we die, we're given new bodies. And all three of those terms, beyond just, okay, well, yeah, whatever. Those are just big, fat terms. You're showing us you went to Bible college or whatever. I'm not. All three of those terms, those concepts, those biblical truths, are in the Bible. And all three of those terms are connected, hinge on, as it were, the the resurrection paves the way for that. Those are byproducts of the resurrection. So when I say, why is it significant, it's, it's regeneration, it's justification, it's glorification. So if you're following along, if you haven't already made little squiggly lines on your notes or drawn a funny picture of me, which wouldn't be hard to do, um, the first point is this, if you want to write this down, Christ's resurrection allows our regeneration. Christ's resurrection allows our regeneration. In fact, let me show you what I mean. Go to the right in your Bible, just quickly, to First Peter. First Peter. I want to see a passage with our own eyes. And note how Peter connects Jesus' resurrection with our being born again or regenerated. Peter writes to churches in different parts of the world who are suffering persecution, and he wants to encourage them with this truth. First Peter 1.3. If you're there... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Do you see that there? When Jesus rose from the dead, his body was transformed and completed for fellowship and obedience to God the Father forever. In his resurrection, Jesus earned for us a new life just like his. Of course, we don't receive all of this new resurrection life the moment we become Christians, do we? Because our bodies are still aging and dying, but our spirit is made alive with new resurrection power. Tempted to start singing, Resurrecting. However, what the song that is, I can't remember it. Ross will have to sing it afterwards. Right? As it says in Colossians 3, since then you have been what? Raised with Christ. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he thought of us as being raised with Christ. Therefore, Jesus' resurrection allowed for our being born again, allowed for our regeneration. Regeneration, is, it's a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. So do you see already how why that's significant regeneration think of like I th- remember I was telling you past present future It's interesting the next point justification has sort of a, an an already and not yet aspect to it So if you want to fill in the next blank you can It says Christ's resurrection permits our justification our justification Justification means receiving a declaration that we are not guilty but righteous before God. It's interesting, though, because the day of judgment has not happened yet. Right? You haven't stood before God yet, and yet you can still be justified now. It's it's a a declaration given in advance, as it were. It's an already and not fully what it'll be. In Romans 4... In your notes there, Paul's talking about Abraham believing in God and how it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness by faith alone. And the same justification comes to those who believe in Jesus. If you look at your notes, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised what? For our what? For our justification. By raising Jesus from the dead... God the Father was showing that he had approved of Jesus' work on the cross and that there was no penalty left to pay for sin. No more wrath to bear. Everything has been paid in full. So listen, why is that relevant? By virtue of our union with Christ. By virtue of our union with Jesus, when the Father declares, I find you innocent, He was making a declaration that would also apply to us if we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Justified, innocent, without sin. Because the resurrection gave final proof that he earned our justification. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection ensures our glorified bodies. Uh, In several passages, the Bible connects Jesus' resurrection with our final bodily resurrection. Uh, We were going through the Sermon on the Mount recently and in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. How can you look on Him, on God with sinful eyes who is pure? You can't unless God purifies your heart and gives you a glorified body which allows you to look on Him. That's why Paul lights to the church in court, wanting them to know that one day they will stand before Jesus and they will be able to gaze upon him. Look what it says in your notes. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul probably talks the most about the resurrection, but look what he says in your notes there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Yeah, that's interesting language. In, in calling Jesus the first fruits, he's using a metaphor from agriculture. Now, I, I uh, Alan Rich, this is where we could use your help, brother, because you're a farmer and I'm not. But there's an agricultural, yes, but there's an agricultural language here to indicate that we will be like Christ just as the first fruits are initial taste of the ripening crop, right? So the farmer... What he would do is he would, when he got the first fruits, that would sort of indicate him what the rest of the season is going to be like. We, it's hard for us to relate to that because we go to Woolies and Coles and Aldi and everything else. But there's this idea of this first fruits. So Christ, as the first fruits of resurrection, displays what our resurrection bodies will be like when in God's final harvest, he raises us from the dead and brings us into his presence. Jesus is that trailblazer, as it were, the first fruits of the resurrection. So why is the resurrection significant for us? Again, think past, present, future. It's regeneration, it's justification, and it's glorification. There's there's an already aspect to it and a not yet that's, that's gonna land at the very end. So on Wednesday, when you are tempted to sin, as we all will be, You'll be reminded that you've been crucified with Christ, and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And the life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and saved you, but He justified you. And all history is moving forward to a new heavens and new earth. And that's without the resurrection, it's over. Game over. Let's all go to Evoka Beach and have a coffee. Or go do whatever you want. Why, do, why would we be here? But if the resurrection is true, then we've been regenerated and justified and now and on our way to glory and we'll be glorified. That's exciting. The resurrection matters. Really, everything hinges on the resurrection, ultimately. Otherwise, this is a big hoax. So here's what I want to do. Kids, if you're in here, some of you, I want you to ask your dad, Dad, what on earth does regeneration mean? Or pick one of those words and talk to your dad about that. And say, I don't... Now, if you're not a kid and you're here with your spouse or here with a friend, maybe look through your notes real quick and say, hey, here's something I'd like to have a chat about. I'm still kind of trying to wrap my brain around it. What did that strange American guy, what was he on about? I don't quite know what he was saying. You don't have to say it that way. You can if you want. And you can use, that, use this, those notes as a discussion point, friends. Now, and if you're here, and you're not a Christian, because, you know, hey, it's Easter, and you wanted to be nice to your, your family member and come, because they've been asking you to come for ages, and you thought, well, it's Easter, so fine, I'll come. Look, this information, it's probably a lot, but it's, it's ultimately relevant for those of us who are in Christ who believe in Jesus, But it can be for you. You don't have to just see this as sort of like a train passing by of information. You can sort of ask, okay, why should I be justified? Why why is this even relevant? And ask the person who brought you. How does this even make sense in my life right now and about eternity and who this God that you believe in? Ask those questions. Don't pass that time up. It may be a little bit awkward. You may be just looking forward to having fish or whatever you're going to eat as quickly as possible. But look, the person that brought you or your friend, have that conversation with them. It's worth it. it you, you have to s- and ask yourself, is this real? Is this truth? Because you might think, nah, it's not for me. I don't believe this. Okay, why? Why don't you believe this? I, I say that to people all the time when, when I'm... I'm talking about the resurrection because Easter and they say, oh yeah, wow, you go to church. Yes, I'd I'd love to invite you. Nah, it's not for me. Why isn't it for you? Oh, it's not my thing. Okay, well, is it not your, I understand if you don't want to go to a service or whatever and you can't sort of, I guess, psychologically connect with that, but like, why, is it it your thing? Do you mean you reject the whole idea of Jesus being the son of God and dying on a cross and rising from the dead? Yeah, kind of. Well, where is it? What point of it? Do Do you see what I'm saying? Is it true? You need to ask yourself that. I know the sun is shining and we're all gonna have hot cross buns and you're gonna live your life on Wednesday and you are just sort of washed out of this. But one day, everyone in this room is gonna stand before God. One day, every single one of you is going to die. Do you know that's still, death rate's still 100% for every human being. In 100 years, but probably everyone in this room will be dead, likely. 100 years, you will stand before God. Is this truth? You have to ask yourself that. Is it real or not? And if, if you say it's not, I hope you have a good reason for it. I would love to talk to you. Look, I used to think this thing was a load of rubbish, and as I continued to investigate it, I was brought by God's grace so that this is this this is truth. I do worship that God. So, He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We do pray that we would see the significance of the resurrection. Help us to understand the important reality of the Lord Jesus. His coming to earth, why he came, why he had to die, why it's significant that he rose from the grave. Lord, I pray if there's some here that in their minds, they just sort of, not it's not for me. I pray that whoever brought them, Lord, they would be able to have an honest, open conversation about why it's not for them. And Lord, that you would work on their hearts. I pray that you'd save them like you did me. Lord, for those of us that are in Christ, we thank you that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. In the life we live, by the body we live, by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. What great news that is. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I ask the